Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. I'll also invite you to find a Bible and turn with me to the book of Exodus, the very beginning of your Bible, the book of Exodus, chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. We'll start in verse 4 this morning. This is the last Sunday in Epiphany, and Lent is just around the corner, starting on Wednesday. But today we're going to be continuing our look into what it means to be a church shaped by Epiphany. So Epiphany means revealing or reveal. And so during Epiphany, we do two things. We celebrate and we participate. So we celebrate the revealing of Jesus to the world, but we also participate uh, by by revealing Jesus to the world as well. In fact, Jesus reveals himself to the world so that his people will continue to reveal him to the world. This call to participate in the revealing of Jesus has been called over the centuries in Latin, Missio Dei, or in English, the mission of God. God's mission to fix all that is broken by our sin in this world through the revealing of Jesus. But here's the crazy part. This mission of God, the vehicle through which this mission is to be accomplished according to God's wisdom is the church. It's you and it's me. That's crazy. The messed up, broken church is God's chosen vehicle to accomplish his mission. It's hard to believe, but it's true. It's true. And we've been looking at key passages in the Bible to prove it to be true. And today's passage is one of the more important passages in the story of scripture that we have talking about this mission. It's an exodus. It's an exodus. We turn to Exodus 19. This is right on the heels of God's miraculous rescue of Israel from Egypt. And in this key moment of existence with slavery behind them and with an uncertain future in front of them, God declares to them or gives them their unique calling card, their unique identity as a people. He calls them a kingdom of priests. And you might think this statement, this title, this designation has nothing to do with us, the people of Jesus, because this, after all, was a long time ago in the Old Testament. So what does it have to do with us? But in the New Testament, Peter and John the Apostle Insist that you and I and the whole body of Christ is a kingdom of priests. Jesus does not erase this identity. If anything, and more accurately, Jesus imprints this identity on us deeper. So we need to understand what it means. We need to understand what it means to be a kingdom of priests. 
And what does it have to do with our church? What does it have to do with you and with my individual day-in, day-out lives? Well, let's read the text together, starting in verse 4 of chapter 19 in Exodus. This is God's word. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and the holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would empower this time with your presence. Help us to not just read your word and to hear your word, but to receive it, to be changed by it, to be transformed by it. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, in our neighborhood, there is this house with an amazing vegetable garden. Uh, They do everything right, this house does. They have a well-built trellis. They have this bespoke gardening workbench. And they even have one of those 60-gallon rain barrels connected to their downspout. Uh, But they don't keep this garden goodness to themselves. Their garden is a blessing to our neighborhood. It's a blessing to our street. Not only does it add beauty to our street, uh, not only does it inspire as you walk past it, but they put practically every day fresh veggies in a box with a sign that says, free. (laughs) Uh, I love this garden. I love this garden because it reminds me of the mission of God. In Genesis 12, God tells an obscure sojourner named Abram that his family, generations after generations after generations of his family, will be a blessing to the whole entire world. That, in other words, that God is going to bless this family and through them, the entire world will be blessed. In other words, from day one, the people of God are promised an amazing harvest from God, the God of the harvest himself. Why? To hoard it for themselves? To enjoy the harvest for themselves? No, to give it away. To be a blessing to the neighborhood. But if I'm honest, um, and I wonder if, if you're honest too, I'm tempted to do the exact opposite. That's sort of my default, sadly. My, my default is, is, thank you, God, for the harvest. Now let me enjoy it for myself. For myself. As much as I talk about blessing others with the blessings that God gives me, often I'm too content to keep the blessings to myself. You all know by now, if you've been with us for a while, that I have this monastic streak inside of me. Uh, This means that I'm tempted always uh, to view my relationship with God only in terms of what I get out of it, not in terms 
of what others get out of it. I want to enjoy my relationship with God by myself. I think we all like to keep our relationship with God to ourselves. We keep our faith private, don't we? I think there's all kinds of reasons why this is a temptation for us and a reality for us. I think we keep our relationship with God private because we live in a hyper-individualistic age. So individualism is a healthy immunity response to hyper-collectivism where the individual gets erased. Individualism can be good. It can be good because it acknowledges the unique dignity that each individual has as an image bearer of God. But hyper-individualism is never a good thing because it ignores our connection to other people. Our cultural moment is hyper-individualistic. And this wreaks havoc on our relationship with God because it means we will privatize our relationship with God. We will make it all about me. Any blessing I receive from God is meant for me. Any spiritual gift that I have is meant for my enjoyment. Anything I do is me before God has nothing to do with other people. Hyper-individualism. That's the air we're breathing right now. I think the second reason we like to keep our relationship with God to ourselves and keep it private is because we live in a secular age. It feels natural to keep our relationship with God private these days because increasingly the world around us doesn't understand our faith. The world around us doesn't, doesn't traffic in our faith. The books we read don't get it. Um, the movies we watch don't portray it. And many of our friends and neighbors uh, don't understand it. And some of, some of uh, the culture around us is outright hostile towards faith. And so what do we do? We just keep it private. This is our thing. This is our thing. We're just going to be with God by ourselves. I think we also keep our relationship with God private because we live in a polarized age. Um, you know, we're, we're afraid that talking about God with others or having a public faith uh, will lump us into some category, some extreme category that we don't want to be a part of. And so we just keep our faith to ourselves. And there's a hundred other reasons why this might be a temptation for us. But the fact remains, we would rather have a private faith than a public faith, wouldn't we? We would rather have a great garden in our backyard, fenced in for ourselves. This must have been a temptation for Israel because one of the first things that God does after rescuing them from Egypt is to say to them emphatically that they have a public relationship with God. That their relationship with him is a public faith. And the way that he does this is by calling them a kingdom of priests. See, priests in those days had two amazing privileges. The first, they had access to the presence of God. The second privilege is they had an obligation to mediate that presence of God to others. These are the two privileges of priests. Intimacy and intermediacy. 
And God calls all Israel a kingdom of priests. Every single person. Yes, there is a specialized priesthood in the Old Testament. There is. Um, But what we see here is that God is calling everybody, all of Israel, a priest. And he's talking about you. And he's talking about me. We are called to a public faith. A faith that is blessed by God's presence in order to bless others. Intimacy with God, intermediacy, bringing God to others. That's our privilege as a kingdom of priests. I want to explain and talk about both of those aspects for a moment. So first, we have intimacy with God as a kingdom of priests. We have intimacy. See, priests had unimagined intimacy with the holy God of creation. Look again at verse 4. It says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Two things to notice here about the intimacy that, that we have with God. First, God bought us for himself. And second, he brought us to himself. He bought us for himself. When God says in verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. He is talking about the Exodus event. And if you back up to chapter 15, Moses is singing a song, leading God's people in worship. And this song is a summary, a poetic summary of the Exodus event. And in verse 16, He describes Israel, the people you have purchased. Purchased. In other words, God looks at them and says, mine. I bought you. You're mine. And so in our passage, he calls Israel his possession. His possession. He bought Israel for himself. But that's not all. He brought Israel to himself. We're not only his possession, we're his family. It's one thing to be owned by God. And the fact that God purchased Israel out of slavery is a significant one. Yet it is another thing to be treasured by God. What does verse 4 say? I bore you on eagle's wings. That's the Exodus event. This rescue, this miraculous rescue. And I brought you to myself. That is an intimate relational language there. The reward of the Exodus was not just deliverance from slavery, but it was God himself. God himself. Israel now has complete access to the God of the universe. That's intimacy. That means we're not just his possession, but we are, in the words of our passage, God's treasured possession. God's treasured possession. Do you have a treasured possession? Um, I was just asking my boys this question. What would you grab in a house fire? Um, 
and they went around the table and they were kind of sharing the things, the first things that they would grab. Uh, for, for me, besides my own children and my dog, uh, Josie and I would grab the artwork off of our walls. I would also grab my guitar because that too is artwork. <laughs> you can't replace these things. They're irreplaceable things. They're our treasures. It's what we would grab off the walls. What about you? Just think about it. What would you grab first? Well, the way you feel about that is a fraction of how God feels about you. He has purchased you from slavery and he calls you his treasured possession. And how much more so in light of the cross, the cross of Jesus, the greater exodus, where you are purchased by the blood of Jesus himself. You are his treasured possession. We are um, just starting to walk through this catechism here with our kids. Um, In the first week question, which might be familiar to all of you, is what is our only hope in life and in death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong to God. This is the privilege of being in a kingdom of priests. We have intimacy with God. We, we are not our own. But we have been bought and we have been brought into God's presence. All priests in the Old Testament had unique access to God's throne room. And because of Jesus, the true and perfect priest, the book of Exodus, I'm sorry, the book of Hebrews tells us that every single Christian has the same bold access to God's throne as children, as brothers and sisters of our older brother Jesus. And so enjoy this, receive this, bask in this. The Bible says you stand in grace. The Bible says that you are friends with God. The Bible says that you have fellowship, koinonia. You have the most intimate kind of relationship with God himself. That's the privilege of priests. We are intimate with God. But that's not all. That's not all uh, priests are called to do. That's not the only privilege that priests have. Priests are also intermediates. They stand and have intermediacy with God, not just intimacy. What do I mean? Well, priests were intermediates between God and people. They stood on a swivel in a way, where uh, they sat on a swivel chair. They, they, they sort of stand between God and against people. That's what priests did. The Old Testament scholars, uh, they've called this the double direction of the priesthood, the double direction of the priesthood. They bring God to the people and they bring people to God. Do you see it? The double direction of the priesthood. They bring God to the people. Priests bring God to the people. In the Old Testament, priests would unpack the word of God so that it was understandable to the people 
A good priest would, in other words, accurately portray and tell people about who God really is against the fabrications and against the confusions of their time and of their day. That's what a good priest would do. It was also important that a priest would live their relationship with God with integrity before all the people, because that too was a portrayal of the character of God, uh, not just to Israel, but to the whole watching world. They brought God to the people. But again, there's a swivel. They also brought the people to God. So think about it. Priests would do this. Uh, They would bring people to God. In the Old Testament, the way they did this is by directing them to God's atonement, to the sacrificial system that God gave Israel by grace. They literally took people's lambs to the altar. Why? So that so that the people of Israel could be with God. Our sin and our rebellion stands between God. But the shed blood of the sacrificial system was a gracious gift to the people because it meant that God could stay holy and stay in their neighborhood. It demonstrated the cost of forgiveness and it ultimately pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus, the perfect spotless lamb of God. Atonement, becoming one or having relationship with God is possible through the shed blood of the cross, the atonement. And that's the double direction of priests. They tell the world about God and they also bring the world to God via the path of the atonement. They bring In other words, they bring God to the people and people to God. And this is what God calls the kingdom of priests. Every single person has this double direction calling in their life. They are to bring God to the people and people to God. Julian Lodge is one of my favorite guitarists. And when I watch him play, I want to sound like him. I want, I want the same guitar he plays. I want to somehow learn how he has learned or learn through the methods that he has learned. I, I want, uh, I just, I'm, I want to play like him. He is, in other words, a representative of the world of the guitar. He is a priest of sorts with a double direction. He takes the craft to others and he brings others to the craft by simply playing beautifully. And that's Israel's calling. They bring God to the world and they track the world to God. They actively share about the God of Zion. And then as they play the melody God gives them, people stream to Zion. And and if that's true of Israel, how much more is it true of us? So Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And he's quoting Exodus 19. He's quoting our passage. Why are you these things? You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then John says this in Revelation 5 verse 9. You, Jesus, were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. This means that your calling to be a kingdom of priests does not fade with Jesus. It intensifies with Jesus. And so, what does this mean for you? It means that when you humbly tell others about the cross of Jesus, you are being priestly. You are bringing people to God. You are ushering people to the atonement of God. You are ushering people into the only pathway of relationship with God. Now listen to how Paul understands himself in Romans 15. He writes, God gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. So when we proclaim the gospel of God, the cross of Jesus, when we proclaim that, we are being priestly. As the priests of old, we are bringing people to God through the cross and through the proclamation of the cross. So to be a kingdom of priests is to be a people who humbly talks about with their friends and neighbors and each other about the cross of Jesus, about the fact that we are broken by ourselves and by our sin, but that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could have access and intimacy with God himself. We talk about that. And when we do so, we're priestly. When you pursue justice in this broken world, you are being priestly. You are bringing God to the world. So if we bring people to God, we also have a call to bring God and his character to the world through our actions. And so when we pursue justice, we're bringing God to the world because you are proclaiming to the watching world that God is a God of justice and that God cares about justice. You are giving the world a more accurate picture of God. When you engage in acts of mercy, like on the Samaritan road, when you're just simply flagrant in your mercy giving, you are being priestly because you are bringing God to the world. You are swiveling on that chair, that priest chair that we all have. You are swiveling between God and his mercy towards you and the world by extending mercy. The same goes for forgiveness. And I could go on and on and on. All of these things are priestly. When you live a simple life of integrity and repentance, you are being priestly. You are demonstrating to the world what intimacy with God looks like. Your pursuit of righteousness is good for your neighborhood. That's what that means. Not your self-righteousness. No, what I call humble holiness. Humble because you know your sin and you're the lead repenter amongst you and your family. You see your sin as the biggest problem in your life, but but who in a heartfelt response to God's grace in your life and his mercy pursues obedience with God intensely and with integrity. And this humble holiness is the best gift that you can give your family. This humble holiness is the best gift that you can give your neighborhood. This humble holiness is the best gift that you can give your job. This humble holiness is the best gift that you can give to anybody. It's the free box sitting on the corner of your yard. It's your priestly duty. You are 
extending the intimacy you have with God to the world. And when you talk about how Jesus is helping you bear the pandemic, or Jesus is helping you walk through a personal hardship in your life, just simple, simple, this is how Jesus is helping me today. Maybe with someone who's, who's never uttered the word Jesus in their life. When you do this, you are being priestly. You are swiveling between God and the people. You are bringing God to others. And you are showing others the pathway to God through Jesus. Hope we are a kingdom of priests. We are not saved by our mission. Israel was already saved. They were already rescued when given this call. And so it's a challenge to us. Will we respond to God's intimacy with intermediacy? Will we? Will we, in other words, share the harvest? Will we point others to the God of our harvest? And that's our challenge today, Hope. Will we be a kingdom of priests? And God, I pray that you would make us so. Lord, in the season of Epiphany, where we've been ex uh, exploring your revealing of Jesus and the call on your people to reveal Jesus to the world, I pray that this image of a kingdom of priests would, would stick to our bones and compel us in uncomfortable ways to mission, the mission you would have us take, your mission. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.